Uh, I would dare to say that most of us in this room have seen or have been in a summertime thunderstorm, one of those real powerful summertime thunderstorms. I remember the first night, uh, Debbie and I lived in the community, we'd moved into the parsonage, and it was at the end of July, and that night it came a a thunderstorm, a thunderstorm, the mother of thunderstorms. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, thunder shook the house. It rattled. You ever been in your house and it rattled the window? I mean, the floor was vibrating. I mean, it was shaking the house. And Debbie quickly found me. She says, where is the center of the house located? She's thinking tornado, you know. And and so uh, she just wanted to know, where do we go? This isn't good. I mean, we were emptying boxes, doing things, and it was just shaking, rattling the house. Now, I'm somewhat... uh, Strange, if you haven't figured that out by now, I like thunderstorms. Now, I don't like what they can produce sometimes, a tornado. I don't care anything about that, but I love thunderstorms. I love the power of a storm. You know, when it thunders and it kind of rattles your chest on the inside. You ever been in one of those? I mean, it's just that night it was. It was just shaking me on the inside, and I was getting this rush of adrenaline because of this power that you could feel from a storm. And some of you are going, yeah, you, you're something wrong with you. Uh, but after studying Psalm 29, a thunderstorm, a storm, takes on a whole new meaning for me. Particularly this week as I studied. A casual reading of this psalm uh, may not point this out to us. If you just read it casually and you didn't focus. But this is a psalm written by David as he views a great storm. David does a wonderful job of capturing the power of this storm. This powerful storm does something to David. It directs David's thoughts to reflect on God and His glory. And this is a poetic retelling, if you will, of a storm. This this is something that really happened that David is viewing. He's watching this massive storm that's taking place. And he's poetically written this psalm and he's retelling of this storm. A storm that immediately draws the heart of David to God. That's what's happening here. David sees this storm, and it's, it's a powerful storm, and David's heart is drawn to God in the storm. Might I add that night, even though I love thunderstorms, my heart was drawing closer to God that night, and David's was too. This is a glory psalm. If you're wondering what's going on, this is a glory psalm. It's about the glory of God and how David saw this displayed in this storm. So if you're looking at your hand out there, The main idea of what's going on is this. Celebrating and worshiping the glory of God. God's people celebrating and worshiping the glory of God. Even though it's not God's people here, this is David, one of God's people. This is applicable to us. Celebrating and worshiping the glory of God. Look at verses 1 and 2. And your handout says there, God ruling as the sovereign king in the heavens. God ruling as the sovereign king in the heavens. Notice in verse 1, he says, Ascribe to the Lord... O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Notice in the first two verses, I just read verse 1, but in the first two verses, you see that phrase, ascribe to the Lord. It's repeated three times, and each time it's repeated with this building momentum. Every time David projects these words, the momentum, the intensity of what he's saying increases. It's done in order to draw our attention to ascribing to the Lord the glory, he says, that's due His name. 
to ascribe. That's one of those uh, older English type words. And it means to acknowledge, to declare something as rightfully belonging to God. It's acknowledging, declaring, and proclaiming something that rightfully belongs to God. And notice here something very interesting about this first verse. Notice who David calls on to ascribe glory to God. Heavenly beings. Heavenly beings. Some of your translations read mighty ones or sons of the mighty. Who in the world are these heavenly beings? Well, they're angelic beings that surround the throne of God in heaven. That's who David is calling on to ascribe glory to God. He's calling on these angelic beings to to ascribe, to acknowledge, to declare something about God. David says this. Notice he says, ascribe what? Glory and strength to God. Acknowledge, declare that God is the one who who possesses glory and strength. He's calling on these angelic beings to do this. And glory here and strength, let's look at the word glory. It refers to the splendor, not splenda, but splendor. And if you're from Georgia, splendor, you know. The splendor and supremacy and the sovereignty of a royal monarch. A glorious, supreme, sovereign king. That's what this word means. And who is he calling on the angels to ascribe this to? God. He says glory. Then he says strength refers to the unhindered ability to carry out all the decrees of his divine will. Notice what I said there. The unhindered ability. The idea is that whatever God purposes to do, he has the strength to do it. He has the power to see that it's carried out. And nothing or no person can hinder or prevent God's will from happening. Ascribe to God this glory and this strength. Glory and strength, David says, are to be ascribed. They're to be acknowledged and declared about God. God does not have 90% of the glory and man 10%. God doesn't have 90% of the strength and man 10%. He says, no, it all belongs to God. God needs to be ascribed the glory and the strength. But notice in verse 2, he says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory that's what? Do His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. David says in verse 2, To ascribe the Lord the glory that's due to Him. This means to acknowledge and declare glory that is appropriate for the character of God that has been revealed to us. What has been revealed to us about God is this glorious wonderful, majestic God, and we to are ascribe, we're to declare, we're to acknowledge glory that is due His name. And then David says, worship the Lord. Now, we, we kind of have an idea of what worship means. We, we hear that word, and I think we use it kind of loosely a lot of times. The word, the word worship means simply to bow down. Physically and Not necessarily physically all the time. It means to be subordinate to. It refers to the worshiper's will being secondary to the sovereignty of God. Bowing down, subordinating, subjecting yourself to God. Worshiping God. It means to lower oneself in the presence of God. Worship means to ascribe, to declare to God that He is more valuable. Listen, He is more valuable than anything else in the world to us. That's what worship is. It's acknowledging that God is more valuable and more worthy of us than anything in this world. But notice here, there's something very interesting going back to it. 
angels are the ones that David is calling on to bow down in worship and adoration and praise. Why do you think he's doing that? Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Angels are to bow down. It's because God is also a God of splendid, grand, superb, impressive holiness. No God, little g, is like this God, big G. He's absolutely unique and distinct. He's the God who is holy and true, according to Revelation chapter 3. And the God who says, because I am holy, you are to be holy as well. Bow down and worship. This is what the angels are supposed to do. But again, why the angels? Why does David call on the angels to worship God? If you're like me, you're thinking, is that not what they're supposed to do? Absolutely. The answer is yes. So why would David do this? Here's why I think he does that. David's heart is so full of praise for God. He feels that his own worship is inadequate to express the greatness of God. He feels that the worship of the people of God is inadequate by itself to sufficiently give testimony to God and the greatness of who He is. So he calls on the angels to become a part of that. Now, you're thinking, well, what, what, what does that mean? What, what's the idea behind that? Here's what I think David's doing. What we see here is a heart that is so God-centered. It's so God-focused that he calls upon the angels to join him in ascribing to God the glory that belongs to him. David says because God is so awesome, he can't adequately, sufficiently worship God. He needs the angels to come and join him. You ever thought of God being that great and that grand that your worship is insufficient? And David says, angel, heavenly beings... Let's get together and describe glory and honor and praise to our God because He's I can't adequately do it. I need the heavenly beings to, to be involved in this. Here's my application for you. Could we do any less? Could we do any less to acknowledge and declare the glory and the supremacy of God? God looks for and He desires that His people worship Him. When we gather here as the people of God, you know what God is looking for? You know what he's looking for? Worship. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking to see if you have on uh, the latest fashion design clothing. He's not looking for that. He's not looking for anything else. He's looking for worship. And that should dramatically affect what we do when we gather here. If God is looking for worship, we come, we focus, our attention should be on what are we doing here to worship God? Every aspect of our worship gathering should be directed toward the worship of God. If this is what God is wanting from us when we gather as the people of God, that's what He wants, that's what He desires. Everything we do should be directed toward that. Now here's a question I have for you as far as application goes. Do we acknowledge and declare God's glory? Now listen. This question I'm asking or presenting is not in doubt. It's a question that causes us to reflect and ponder. Do we acknowledge and declare God's glory in our teaching and in our preaching? Do we do that? How about, are you ready? In our listening to teaching and preaching. Okay. For those who are getting heavy right now, now's a good time to wake up. Are you ascribing worship and glory to God in your listening to teaching and preaching? When you show up on Sunday morning, you sit in that class, and that teacher has worked all week long and has 
had to find time to sit down and adequately prepare that lesson is coming to teach you about God. Do you come in appreciative of that, but more appreciative of the fact that I'm going to hear God's Word taught to me and I'm going to listen and I'm going to worship in my listening. So in other words, if you're not listening, if you're thinking about everything else in the world, you're not worshiping God when it comes to the teaching and preaching. Do we acknowledge and declare God's glory in our praying? In our giving? Do we acknowledge and declare God's glory in our singing? When we teach and when we preach, when we pray and sing, do we acknowledge and declare God's glory? Put it to the test. Everything we do, our teaching, our preaching, our singing, our praying, our fellowshipping, we need to ask ourselves, are we worshiping God? Are we worshiping God when we do these things? Also, when we leave here, listen, I don't insult your intelligence, but worship is not confined to what we're doing here today. All of life is worship, is it not? Read Romans chapter 12 in case you're wondering about that. All of life is worship. When we leave here and we go about our lives this week, God is looking for us to ascribe glory to Him through the living out of our lives. He's looking for that. And here's my question for you. Are you living your life filled with a deep sense of God's glory? Are you living your life in response to God's glory? Or is your life all about you? If life is all about you, you know what the Bible calls that? Let me give you a hint. It starts with an S. It has three letters. Sin. If life is all... If you wake up every morning and everything is done and planned and projected for your benefit... It can be, but the goal should be, is my life going to project and declare and ascribe glory to God today? Is my life going to... You know, sin causes you to replace the glory of God with other glories so that that glory is what rules your heart. It's the glory that commands your life. The glory that becomes the basis of the decisions you make are for you and not for the glory of God. Here's my question for you. What glory right now is commanding your heart? Is it God? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ who is your Lord and Savior? Be honest with yourself. What glory is commanding my heart? What glory has a hold of my life? Is it the glory of financial success? And listen, there's nothing wrong with having money. You've heard me say that. There's nothing wrong with having money, but it's wrong to glory in that. Is it the glory of material possessions? The glory of the affection and respect of a certain person? You realize we can take a relationship and we can turn that into a God? We can turn someone into a God. And let me just let you in a little secret here. Me and my wife have been married 32 years this past Thursday. (laughs) Is she... And she knows what I'm about to say. I love her dearly, but she makes a bad God. She makes a bad Savior. And she'll quickly tell you, Amen, and it's right around the reverse. That's reciprocal. I make a bad God. I make a bad Savior. You know why? Because we can let one another down. And when we begin to glory and put our hope and everything we've got into someone else besides God, we're glorying in the wrong thing, and that's sin. Is it a, the glory of physical beauty and physical health? 
Some people live their whole lives spending, acquiring to do what? To make themselves look beautiful and to present themselves. It's all about me. It's all about people looking at me. These, among other things, will not satisfy the longings of your heart. Only God is able to satisfy the longings of your heart. Can I tell you something? If you put all your... What they used to say? Don't put all your um, eggs in one basket. Thank you. If you're taking everything you've got and you're pouring it into something other than God, guess what? That is going to let you down one day and you're going to fall and you're going to fall hard. Can I tell you something? God will fulfill and satisfy the longings of your heart like nothing else. There are people in this room, your life is a life of anxiety. You're driven, you're empty, you're confused, you're addicted because you're trying to feed your soul on something that will not satisfy you. This world, in case you haven't figured it, will let you down. It will leave you wanting all the time. But can I tell you, Jesus will never fail you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never fails. Here's what I want to say. Jesus, for most Christians, is just a slice of the pie of life. And here's what I mean by that. Life is this big pie. And when someone comes to know Christ, here's what most Christians do. Jesus becomes another slice, and we squeeze Him into that life, and He just becomes another slice in the pie of life. Right? Family, job, relationships, this, that, this and that. And Jesus, yeah, He's in there. He's another slice of the pie. Here's here's the problem with that. Jesus is not to be a slice. He's to be the whole pie. Everything in life should filter through Him. Your relationships, your parenting, your work, your successes in life, your going to school, getting an education, your jobs, everything you pursue in life, you should be asking the question, how will I use this to bring glory to God? And see, here's here's what happens. When Jesus just becomes a slice of the pie, guess when He gets a little nibbling on? Sunday morning. That's about the only time he gets any of our attention. I was talking with a pastor in the area the other day, or several weeks back, and he said something to me that just sort of devastated me as a pastor, as a Christian. He had a member come to him after church one Sunday and said, Pastor so-and-so, you thought I was going to say his name, didn't you? <laughs> Pastor, I appreciate your passion. My goodness. I love your passion for Jesus and preaching the gospel. I love your passion for what you do in ministry. I, I, I appreciate that so much, and, I, and I'm grateful. And she said, but you've got to understand something. Us other Christians, we've got to live life. Here's what she was saying. We've got other things to do. You know, I left that day from him and I was just kind of like, really? Preachers are the only ones who are to be passionate in Jesus, to have the passion of their lives? In a sense, what she was saying, yeah, preacher, that's what you're supposed to do. But we, other Christians are not pastors. we got life to live. We don't have all this time to be passionate and pouring our life. And I thought, my goodness, 
Can I be honest with you? If I woke up tomorrow morning and God put a desire in my heart that says, Gary, I no longer want you to be a pastor. Don't worry. I'm not, this is not a subliminal message to read between the lines. <laughs> but if God said, I want you to go back into the secular work environment. I don't want you to be a pastor anymore. You know what I'd do? <clears throat> I'd get up the next day at 4.30. I'd read my Bible. I would pray. I would drink my coffee. I would get dressed. And I'd go into that job. And I would go to be on mission for God to share the gospel, to build relationships with people. That's what I would do. So it's not about being a pastor or a preacher to be passionate. It's about God and how glorious and how wonderful He is as people of God to live for Him. And all of life is about Him. Nothing is to be outside of Jesus. God deserves all the glory for everything we do. And everything we do in life is to project people toward Him and see how glorious and how wonderful He is. We need to move. Verses 3 and 9. God ruling as sovereign king over the earth. In verses 3 and 9, David, this is where he gets down to describing a storm that sweeps over the entire country. It goes from north of Israel all the way to the south. And there are three scenes in this storm, and I'll try to go through them quickly. Pay attention to see that God is the... Notice what's going on here. God is the one declaring His supremacy over the earth. It's God who's doing this. Look at scene 1, verses 3 and 4. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The waters here, and this term many waters, refers to the open sea. Picture it. David is sitting in Israel and he's looking out over the ocean. And notice that the voice of the Lord is speaking through this storm, indicating that God is in control. Seven times in these verses we see the phrase, what the voice of the Lord. Seven is a number of completeness and perfection. What's being communicated to us is that the voice of God speaks with absolute supremacy over everything. In and through the storm, there's the full perfection of the power of God, and there's in no way a diminishing of His power in the midst of this storm. In fact, God God is the one commanding and directing and dictating this storm. Verse 3, it says says there that the God of glory... What does the God of glory do? He thunders. It's another indication of a powerful storm. David says that it is the glory of God. It is thundering. It's thundering because God is the one who's over the storm. The storm is an extension of God. I don't know about you, but after that one night I just described to you, you, have you ever thought of the thunder in a storm being the voice of God declaring how glorious He is? That's exactly what's going on. Many waters tells the immense size of this storm. It's huge. And God is over. He's controlling. He's fueling. He's empowering the storm. And He's going to be sending it. And it will obey the Lord's voice to go wherever He desires it to go. Notice in verse 4. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord is what? It's powerful. It's majestic. The storm which God controls is powerful, but the voice that commands and controls it is even more powerful than the storm. Verse 4 says, The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Majesty has the idea of the regal nobility of a king. It's the splendor and the greatness that surrounds a king as he sits on the throne. You ever envision a king as he sits on his throne? All this 
majesty and all this glory and splendor and greatness that surrounds him. David says that's what we see. David sees and hears this storm. He sees the king, the kingly majesty of God, the one who sits above the storm. The thunder, the lightning, the wind, all this reflects the one who rules and who controls this storm. The thunder and the lightning, they're they're shaking the earth. And all this is attributed to what? The voice of God. The voice of God. Scene 2, verses 5 and 7. The storm moves from the sea now and it moves into the land. Look at verse 5. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Let me stop right here. What did David just get through doing? Ascribe with me, heavenly beings, glory to our great God. And then he moves into this powerful demonstration of who God is. The power and the fear of this storm are now over the land. The storm moves over Lebanon, which if you look in your maps in the back of your Bible, you would discover it's north of Israel. It was a land, and I've, I've been to Lebanon when I was in the Navy. I was in Israel and in Lebanon and over there when all those... Remember back in the 80s when all the Marines got killed? I was over there then. And Lebanon has these humongous, tall mountains. And when the storm hits Lebanon, David says it wreaks havoc on Lebanon. Lebanon is also known for these massive cedar trees. I've seen them. They are huge. The Mac Daddy of trees. I mean, these things are huge. They're known for these massive cedars and these large mountains. But notice what the storm does here. It breaks the cedars. The cedars are like or some of the largest trees in the world, and it breaks them like toothpicks. Some sources say, I didn't see one this big, but some sources say in biblical times, the base of these cedars could reach 40 feet in diameter. I don't know about you, that's a big tree. They were so large, they were used... You remember reading about uh, Solomon when he built the temple? Where did he go to get his wood to make the pillars in the temple? Lebanon. And the trees were so big, what did they have to do? They had to float them down the river to get them where they wanted them to go. They were used to build these massive pillars in the temples. This storm is commanded by the Lord. The voice of the Lord shatters these massive trees. Look at verse 6. I love this one here. When you first read it, it's like, okay, what's going on here? He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. He, the Lord, makes Lebanon skip like a calf. What in the world does that mean? Picture these large, massive mountains with these huge cedar trees growing out of them. They're brought into submission. They're like a calf. Now, some of you appreciate this. You ever watched a calf that wasn't very old in, in the pasture running and kicking up his legs and frolicking, skipping and playing? You ever seen that? Get that picture. David says when God sends this storm to this massive Lebanon, these mountains, these cedar trees, it's almost like a calf skipping in the pasture. That's how powerful this... He takes the mountains, he takes the cedars, he takes Lebanon, and he just throws them. It's like them skipping like calves across a field. Look again at verse 6. And Syrian like a young wild ox. Syrian is another name for Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the giant, massive mountain in the northernmost boundary of Israel. And it reaches 9,200 and some odd feet into the air. It's so high that even in the extreme hot weather in Israel, the tops of it still stay covered with snow. That's how high it is. But when God sends this storm, Mount Hermon at 9,000 feet tall begins to shake under the force of the storm. And thus it appears to be like a young wild ox that too skips 
Now, I can't confirm this. Some of you may be able to do this. But in my reading and studying of this particular phrase here, I ran across the fact that one commentator said that no one can make a wild ox skip. It can't be done. It's not like the calf. You cannot make a wild ox skip. How many of you have ever heard the saying, stubborn as a ox? I heard that all my life as a kid. You're stubborn as an ox, Gil. A wild ox has a mind of its own. It only does what it wants to do. You cannot make a wild ox skip. Do you get the picture? God takes this mountain in this storm and He makes it like an ox that is stubborn, that will not move, and He makes this thing move. That's how powerful God... That's the whole idea behind it. And in verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The idea is that God speaks and thunderbolts come forth and they consume this mountain in fire. This huge, massive mountain is shaking. God is taking something powerful and He is shaking this thing and breaking the cedars. And making it skip and shake like a calf or a wild ox who is stubborn. Notice scene 3 in verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The storm is now moved into the wilderness. And Remember, David's watching the storm. And again, we see the power. What does it do? It shakes the wilderness. In particular, the wilderness of Kadesh. And if you're, if, if you're thinking back to the Old Testament, Kadesh was the wilderness where what happened? Moses and the children of Israel. That's where they were. The people of God were during the wandering in the wilderness. So this storm David is seeing goes to the north. It covers the whole land. It goes all the way to the south. The idea is that God is in control. He's been guiding. He's been directing the storm the entire time. In verse 9, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple all cry glory. This storm is so intense It's so terrifying that it causes the animals to give premature birth. That's what it's talking about here. It says when God makes the deer give, making it give birth means the animals are so terrified of the power of this storm that the ones who are carrying are pregnant, they give birth prematurely. Ladies, think about that. What that would be like, Robin, for a storm to be so powerful that the baby comes early. Way early. Notice the thunderous voice of God strips the forest bare. The storm knocks down, it shreds everything in its path. Again, it's a demonstration of the awesome power of God. What can we say in response to such a display of sovereign power? What in the world could you and I possibly say about that? What can we do? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 9. And in His temple, all cry Glory. We gather together in the place of worship, His temple, and we shout with the angels in verses 1 and 2. What do we shout, church? Glory. God is great. He is worthy. This is due His name. Glory here, again, means praise, worship, and adoration. We ascribe, we acknowledge, we declare with our mind and our hearts the greatness and the sovereignty of God. When we do that, we won't be drawing attention to ourselves, will we not? No, we'll be lifting up our great God. Let me ask you something. Is that what you've come here to do today? I have to check myself all the time. Is that what I've come here to do today? Ask yourself right now, have I come here today 
to do that? This is a question that should cause us to ask ourselves, are we doing things again when we come together that ascribe glory to God? I think God wants us to ask ourselves that question. You know, a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this as well, we ask God to bless what we're doing. I don't necessarily know if that's right. I think we should be asking God to help us do what's right. Don't bless our feeble efforts. God, help us do what is worthy of your name. We should always be evaluating what we're doing when we gather. We, we need to be asking, does this particular thing focus our attention on God? If we believe that God is a sovereign creator who reigns and rules over everything, then we're to gather to ascribe to God the glory that is due His name. Quickly, verses 10 and 11. The Lord sits enthroned. Excuse me, your handout says there, God's sovereignty over His people. Verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king. What's the next word, church? Forever. The Lord sits enthroned there, it says, over the flood. David, as he's considering this awesome display of God's power and majesty in the storm, his mind went to another majestic display of God's power. The flood here is referring to the flood where, you think? In the book of Genesis. It's referring to a time when God commanded the destruction of the earth by a great flood. The flood, David says, like this storm, declares a clear and undeniable message. God is king. Notice it says the Lord sits, what? Enthroned as king for how long? Forever. God's majesty and power and judgment by means of a universal flood, David says, testify that his position is king. Revelation chapter 19 verse 16 proclaims that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 11. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. The phrase His people here is extremely important. It is to His people and only His people that God makes these promises that we see. Hear this, when David talks about strength here, he's not referring to physical strength, okay? He's talking about the strength of the heart of the believer. He's talking about that inner courage and that inner resolve that is only possible when you understand that you've come to know that Jesus is Lord and Savior. The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He's Lord of your life and has made you the place where He dwells. You know, some days I forget, as a child of God, that God lives inside of me through the Spirit. The day I turned from my sin and trusted in Christ, a glorious thing happened. God came to live within me. The God that David sees sitting in this great storm is the same God that lives and dwells within us. And let me help you make application here. That being the case, do you live with courage? Do you live with courage? Do you live with hope? Are you anxious, fearful, afraid, unsure, insecure? Do you live with Jesus as King? You see, it's His power that gives you rest. It's His rule that gives you hope. Verse 11, May the Lord bless His people with peace. That's another word we like to use, right? Peace. What is peace? One commentator I read said this, Peace is that inner sense of well-being that cannot be shaken by situations, locations, 
our circumstances. That's peace. Listen, if situations can rob you of your peace, if other people can rob you of your peace, then your peace is probably not resting in the glory of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Do you rest in that glory? Does that glory give you courage? Does it give you hope? Let me ask you this. Does it allow you to say, I don't have a clue what's happening in my life, but it's okay because the God who is my hope knows everything. You ever had days like that? I have no idea what's going on in my life. But as a child of God, you can go, I know who does. And I can rest in Him. He rules everything. He has power over everything. And that God is a God of awesome grace. If you can't say that, then there, here may be your problem. What other glory entices you what other glory becomes a replacement glory for you? What other glory do you look to to satisfy your heart? In the heart of every person, even the believer, there's a glory war going on in your heart. Every single day. And until Jesus comes, that's the way it's going to be. Jesus came to free us from slavery to all wrong kinds of glory. Glories that will let us down and leave us wanting. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer and you're struggling and you're you're putting your trust in everything but Jesus to satisfy you. You're a believer. You're trusting in Christ, but you keep looking for satisfaction and peace and comfort in other things. Here's what you need to do. Repent. Confess your struggle and ask Jesus for forgiveness. It's that simple. If you're looking for peace and comfort and satisfaction as a child of God and the things of this world and you're not looking to Him... That is sin, and you can confess it. And guess what Jesus does every time we come to Him and confess our sins? He is faithful and just to do what, church? Forgive us all of our unrighteousness. He will never turn away someone who is repenting. Maybe you're here, and you've never put your trust in Christ. Today is the day that God may be reaching out to you to welcome you, to confess your struggle, and to come to Him and repent and find forgiveness in Him. I say this all the time to people when I talk to them. I'll be honest with you. As a Christian, I don't know how lost people make it in this world. I just don't know how you do it. I, I can't imagine what it's like to live without Christ. Through everything that goes on in life, regardless of what it is. I, I've said this before. If I woke up tomorrow... And somebody said, you've been lied to, there's no gospel, there's no Jesus, and that's not going to happen. I think I'd just, I'd just lose my mind. Because I, here's what, I've get, you know, I just, everything I've got, God, here it is. Everything I have is yours. And if you're lost without Christ, I don't know how you make it. I don't know what you do in life. I don't know, I don't know where you go to. I, I do know what you go to. I know what you run to. But guess what? All those things do what? They let you down every single time. The God of glory. Jesus Christ is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray.